So many timely subjects have been discussed today, beginning with the great, la the great address by President Lee, <clears throat> that I have been edified, and I'm sure that you have as well. And now I humbly pray that I may not detract, but may add a little bit to your thinking and doing as we consider the second great principle of the gospel. I feel there is need for it. The primary purpose of the gospel and of the Church is to provide a pattern and a, for living and a prescription for happiness and success here and hereafter. President McKay declared on many occasions that next in importance to, the, to life itself is the privilege of directing that life. To, to direct one's life is a privilege. It is also a real personal responsibility. Speaking to his sons, Lehi explained this by saying, Wherefore, men are free. They are free to choose liberty and eternal life, or to choose captivity and death, according to the captivity and power of the devil. For he seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. And now, my sons, I would that you should look to the great mediator and hearken unto his commandments and be faithful unto his words and choose eternal life according to the will of his Holy Spirit and not choose eternal death according to the will of the flesh and evil which is therein, which giveth the spirit of the devil power to captivate and bring you down to hell, that he may reign over you in his own kingdom. Because sin is such a devastating, destructive force, the great principle of repentance was re provided by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to extricate ourselves from the clutches of sin. Without the blessed privilege of repentance, we would have but little incentive to improve our lives. Repentance isn't easy. It takes ability, takes self-discipline and humility. Repentance is not a, a negative teaching, but rather it is a positive process of building good character. Repentance could become a remedy for mo most of our spiritual ills. However, it is not a mere superficial, shallow-rooted expression of regret. What then is true repentance? President Joseph F. Smith declared that true repentance is not only sorrow for sin, but humble penitence and contrition before God. But it involves also the necessity of turning away from our sins, a discontinuance of all evil practices and deeds, a thorough reformation of life, a vital change from evil to good, from vice to virtue, from darkness to light, 
Not only this, but, it, but to make restitution so far as it is possible from all the wrongs that we have done to others. To pay our debts, to restore to God and to man their rights which are due them from us. This is true repentance and, by the, and the exercise of the will and the powers of the body and the mind are demanded to complete this glorious work of repentance. Only then will God accept it. If one truly repents, it will be manifested by his works. For by this ye may know that a man repenteth of his sins. Behold, he will confess them and forsake them. Thus, repentance calls for heartfelt sorrow for sin, resulting not only in a cessation thereof, but also in the reformation of his life. That's the important thing, a reformation of life. To repent is exa isn't exactly popular these days. Yet the Lord expects each one of us to repent, to improve, and to conscientiously reform our lives. In fact, he set for us a lofty goal, saying, Be ye therefore perfect even as your Father in, which is in heaven is perfect. Admittedly, this is an imperfect world. Nevertheless, each of us should be constantly striving toward perfection. Let him who steals, steal no more. Let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Destroy your enemies by making them your friends. Let the unkind among us become considerate. Let the truth be spoken, always, no matter what the consequences may be. Yes, and I'd like to add Brother Packer's recommendation that we rid ourselves of the unmusical music, and adopt some that does the soul and the heart good and must be pleasing to the Lord. We can at least do that in our own homes. To practice these virtues gives evidence of forsaking wrong. We ought not to, to let personal faults and bad habits and moral weaknesses persist. They should be overcome and corrected. Without delay, I have often said you can't repent too soon because you don't know how soon it'll be too late. One of my distant Scandinavian relatives who was thriving financially in Denmark came with his family as converts to the church to America and they were directed to settle in San Pete County. He was quite well-to-do, as I said, and he owned, he sold his lands and herds and flocks for what he could and, and came without complaint. And for a while he did well as far as the church and his activities are concerned. But I, uh, amazingly, 
even without the rainfall and the water and the resources, he began to thrive again and accumulated wealth again. He became so interested and involved in his possessions that he forgot about the purpose of his coming to America. They waited upon him as ward teachers. The bishop would call upon him and implore him to act, to become active as he used to be. And he would promise them that in the future, when he got certain things settled at all, that he would do it. Finally, he was growing old, and they came and said to him, Now, Lawrence, the Lord was good to you when you were in Denmark. He has been good to you since you've come here. See all the things that you possess. We think now, since you're growing a little older, that it would be well for you to spend some of your time in the interests of the church. After all, they said, you can't take these things with you when you go. And he stopped. He was shocked. And he said, well, well then I will not go. <laughs> but he did. And so will we. It's time today to begin the program and process of repenting. My brothers and sisters, you know and I know that the power of the destroyer is persistently, relentlessly operating upon the minds and hearts of the children of men, young and old, in the church and out of the church. And too many are yielding to his evil enticement. We've been warned by the Lord and by our leaders through the years to repent. Presently this morning urges us to begin with ourselves and develop self-respect and, and beginning there set out on, a purpose, on the real purpose of life. We've been supplied with heaven-sent programs such as the Family Home Evening Program to keep our families secure and our homes intact. It has been predicted that in the last days men's heart, men shall become lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. For behold, at that day shall he rage in the hearts of men and stir them up to anger against that which is, which is good. And others he will pacify and lull them away into carnal security that they will say, all is well. Yea, all is well in Zion. Zion prospereth, and all is well. And thus the devil cheateth their souls and leadeth them away carefully down to hell. I like that word carefully because that's the way he operates. He never jerks, he never pulls, just gradually, step by step. Now in this situation... In the world today, let us remember the admonition of James. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist evil, and he will, and the devil will flee from you. Draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. May we all repent and place our lives and our, our homes in order 
and in perfect harmony with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray, testifying to the truthfulness of the restored gospel. And in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I pray that the Lord might bless me this afternoon as I say a few words to encourage the youth of the church. A Brigham Young University student wrote the editor of the Daily Universe following President Oak's recent address to the students on standards and dress and on conduct. This young man wrote, Why must we always tag along behind the rest of the world trying to get as close as our religion will let us. A style of our own is not an empty phrase, he said. Today's teenagers live in a world not in a world far different from that experienced by their parents. Though the world is becoming more wicked, the youth of Christ's church can become more righteous if they understand who they are. If they understand the blessings available, understand the promises God has made to those who are righteous, who believe, and who endure. All of our youth are entitled to and need this knowledge to combat the forces of deception that would lead them captive into darkness. Peter, writing from Rome to the scattered saints, understood their trials and temptations to desert the faith and go back to their old ways. He encouraged the, the saints, as he wrote, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth. Peter then adds a broader dimension with stirring words to help us to understand who we are when he wrote, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a peculiar people, and as a, cho and as a chosen and peculiar people, ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. My, what a wonderful declaration of identity for our youth to ponder. Chosen generation, royal priesthood, a peculiar people. Recently, while attending a state conference and having the added blessing of meeting with the young people, some of whom had driven long hours, I learned that several of them were the only Latter-day Saints in their high schools. And when I asked, you set the right example for the rest of the students, don't you? They replied, we really try. But as they said, we really try, I could see the light of belief and conviction in those youthful faces. I could begin to understand what Peter meant by our being called out of the darkness into this marvelous light. Our youth, with all of their distractions, must realize that through their membership they are very special, that the Lord is counting on them, <clears throat> that the prophecies might be fulfilled. <clears throat> you of a noble birthright are different from your friends who are not members of Christ's true church. You are a chosen generation. You live in the world, but you do not follow worldly trends or habits that are contrary to your own belief. May I remind you of only a few of the very special events in your life that cause you to be different. You have made some promises, and some eternal promises have been made to you. 
Many of you were born under the covenant, your parents having made a covenant with God. You can, if worthy, inherit thrones, kingdoms, principalities, and have exaltation and glory sealed upon your head forever and ever. Chances are your non-member friends wouldn't quite understand these terms. In today's world, they may sound rather strange. You have been baptized even by water and of the fire, and of fire and of the Holy Ghost, making your salvation possible if you endure and are faithful to the end. You partake of the sacrament at our meeting, symbolic of the torn flesh and spilled blood of our Savior, giving you an opportunity to renew your covenant to keep the Lord's commandments, that His Spirit may continue to be with you. It did with a young teenage girl in Scotland who told of being with non-member friends. She wanted to be part of the group and thought, Surely one little drink wouldn't hurt. Why not? Then she realized her celestial kingdom goal. After that, she said the ridicule didn't matter. She had felt of his spirit and could feel of his influence at that incident. You are surrounded with temptation and wickedness, but you don't succumb to them. A Chinese scholar wrote, A gem cannot be polished without friction nor man perfected without trials. You young men have received the priesthood of God with the authority to perform special ordinances in His name, His right delegated to you to be His fully qualified servant with power to bind on earth and in heaven, to administer spiritual things. Just this week we received a letter from a mother telling of her Navy son now stationed on a small island 1,200 miles south of India, out, into the, out in the Indian Ocean. He has only the, it has only the military base and a small coconut plantation. This young man has located six other LDS boys, and they are now holding regular church services. He wrote his mother telling of his opportunity now to prepare lessons for their priesthood meetings. Young men on a tiny speck of land in a vast ocean, recognizing and using their priesthood authority. They are different. The Lord said, For whoso is faithful unto the obtaining these two priesthoods of which I have spoken, and the magnifying their calling, are sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of their bodies. Such an experience these young men are having. You can, if you qualify, go to the temple with your sweetheart, the one you dearly love, to be married in a manner prescribed by the Lord to continue forever as husband and wife in the celestial kingdom of God. And if you live worthily to gain eternal life, the greatest of all of God's gifts to men. At times, I wonder if you really comprehend the far-reaching eternal significance of temple marriage. If you really understand you, if you really understood, you would never settle for less. Marriage is a divine ordinance, not to be by a justice of the peace or to be taken lightly, but ordained of God and to man. And you can, if worthy, even perform miracles, which makes you different from the rest of your friends, to heal the sick, to cure all manner of disease. Healings are among the signs that follow true believers. 
faithful young elders have this power. These are only a few of the eternal principles that distinguish you from the materialistic style being developed by worldly men today. As you place the weight of your influence on the side of good, on the side of truth and beauty, your life will achieve an endless, an endless splendor, nobler than you might imagine. Paul, writing to his beloved Timothy and realizing the pressure Timothy was experiencing, said, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Some of you attend schools where there are but a few members of the church, others where we are a majority. But if you conduct yourselves properly and develop your personality along church standards, your candle will be high on a hill and will burn brightly for all to see. Dare to think for yourself. Have the strength of character to act the way you know to be right. Debbie Brown, the only Mormon in her Roanoke, Virginia, high school senior class, said, It is so important for us to live the standards of the church. Most people who know anything about our church know that it maintains the highest moral principles. There is never a need to apologize, she said. We are so lucky to have the true gospel. By making the church standards our standards, we can share this gospel with others. Then she continued, A good friend, not a member of our church, invited me to a party celebrating our victorious football season. He was a popular football player. I was hesitant. He knew I was a Mormon. My hesitation must have been evident. He quickly added, There will be no drinking allowed. People know our standards, she went on to say, and respect us for them. To be different from the crowd is a privilege. Now to our young friends, you may feel at time that the Lord's commandments restrict your freedom as compared with others. Freedom does not mean license, nor does it imply the absence of all restrictions and discipline. The Savior did not teach undisciplined, permissive-type freedom when he said, Know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He is telling us that his truth, if followed, would free us from falsity, from deception. That his gospel, if followed, would free you to gain eternal life. As the light of the gospel fills our soul, your abilities will increase. You will love your neighbors and be of sincere service in helping others. We have a young military chaplain a, a former missionary who is happily married, who lives the gospel and lives as he should. His superior officer at his first duty assignment was so impressed with his spirit that he wrote, I want you to know how much we chaplains and the thousands of men have appreciated his presence. To describe him like a breath of fresh, clean air would be poetic, and not intended to demean the other chaplains who labor at our large base. He has a special charisma that radiates love. The officer then went on to say, We have benefited in many ways from this young chaplain. We not only admire him, but we have renewed our own enthusiasm. Thousands have derived great spiritual and social benefit from his services. 
I testify to our noble youth who will be the future leaders of our society and the Church that you are different. You need not look just like the world. You need not entertain like the world. Your personal habits should be different. Your recreation will be different. Your concern for your family will be vastly different. If you establish this distinctiveness firm, firmly in your life pattern, only blessings await you for doing what is right. It is written, If you speak and act with pure thoughts, happiness will follow like a shadow. Remember, my young friends, that Christ is the only one through whom we can reach the divine destiny. You and I must believe in Him, believe that His Church was founded and established upon divine revelation, that we have presiding over His Church a true and living prophet through whom revelation is received from, for the world today, for all of His people, today, now, 1973. President Harold B. Lee sits here with us now. We have heard his voice, listened to his counsel and wisdom, knowing we will never be led astray, but only encouraged by him to live as we should, to obey God's commandments down to the last day. A former president of the Church counseled the saints, Keep your eye on the president of this Church. If he tells you to do anything and it is wrong and you do it, the Lord will bless you for it. But you don't need to worry. The Lord will never let his mouthpiece lead this people astray. President Lee recently, in a most moving address to the Brigham Young University student body, said, The measure of your true conviction is whether or not you see the power of God resting on the leaders of this Church, and that, that that testimony goes down into your heart like fire. May these words of His have a deep impact on all, but especially on you, our youth. The world may not comprehend what He said, but you can. You are different. You are in a chosen, chosen generation. May you see the power of God resting on him as our prophet. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's an inspiration to all of us to remember the teachings of our Savior and the many wonderful things that he gave to the world. He lived long before recorded history. He was in the great council in heaven. He helped his Father in the shaping of the heavens, in the creation of earth, and in the making of man. In opposition to Satan's plan, it was he who proposed man's free agency, giving him the glorious privilege of choice, which means so much to all of us. He went about teaching and doing good. Men followed him not for worldly riches, but to gain treasures in heaven. He set up a new code of for living to love one another, even one's enemies. He enjoined us to judge not, to forgive, and give all men a second chance. In the Doctrine and Covenants, he, tell us, he tells us that it is our duty to forgive one another 
and that he who does not forgive his brother stands condemned and is the greater sinner of the two. He gave our society our most undying formula for getting along together when he made this statement. Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now there are very few of us that are living up to this teaching. Yet I am sure we all agree that if men followed this principle, they would solve the problems that we are now facing in all nations of the earth. Yes, if we lived this principle, it would be easy to love and forgive those who trespass against us. In Matthew we read this statement. There was an instance where Christ was approached by some of the leading lawyers of the day who said, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now it should be remembered that our nearest neighbors are the members of our own family. Next are those living next door to us, in the same block, the same city, the same state, the nation, yes, even the whole world. All whom we associate with or influence in any way are our neighbors. Can a man reach the celestial kingdom if he does not love his neighbor as himself? When Jesus gave the second commandment, he said it was likened to the first. And repeating both of them, he said, On these commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He made them very important, so important that all other laws and commandments rest upon them. Let us ask another question. Can a man live the first and great commandment if he does not live the second? In other words, can he love God with all his heart if he does not love his neighbor? John the Apostle said, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. In Third Nephi we find this statement, for verily I say unto you, He that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention. And he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. Behold, this is not my doctrine, to stir up the hearts of men with anger one against another, but this is my doctrine, that such things should be done away. Now these statements and many others should make it clear to all of us that the Lord desires us to love and forgive one another. It behooves us to conquer our pride and settle our differences with our fellow men. As just quoted from 3 Nephi, contentions and disputations are of the devil and are not approved by our Heavenly Father. Loving our neighbors as ourselves will bring great joy and happiness into our lives. Christ practiced forgiveness. 
You remember the story of the woman that had sinned. The law was that she should be stoned to death. They brought her before the Savior to see how he would judge her. In John, it is recorded, this they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Not any in the group could qualify, and the crowd dispersed. He then turned to the woman and said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, he certainly didn't approve of what she had done, but he demonstrated forgiveness and left it up to his Father in heaven to judge her. He forgave those who would take his life at the very time when he was suffering the most. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, the gospel he brought to earth and which was restored in this dispensation provides us with a beautiful plan of salvation. We know that we had a previous existence and were valiant there. Now, the Lord permitted us to come to earth that we might obtain a body, gain knowledge, develop our skills and our characters, learn to overcome evil, and see if we can remain true and faithful to him and be sufficiently diligent and obedient to the commandments as to be worthy to return and abide in his presence. Many of our problems are blessings in disguise. They are provided so that we might gain the experiences intended for us on this earth and thus prepare us for meeting and solving problems in the next phase of our eternal existence. Now today, as I contemplate the many, many blessings that have been given to us, I recall the words of King Benjamin in the Book of Mormon when, after enumerating the blessings which had been poured down upon his people by the Lord, he said this to them, And behold, all that he requires of you is to keep his commandments. Yes, the only thing the Lord requires of us is that we keep his commandments. This sounds relatively simple, doesn't it? But we all know that it isn't simple, nor was it intended to be. Where much is given, much is expected. The Lord requires of those who dwell with him the ability to overcome weaknesses and imperfection. He requires self-denial and self-discipline. Some of us may feel from time to time that some of the Lord's commandments are an impediment to happiness in this life, but this isn't so. And deep down in our hearts we know that so long as we adhere to the commandments, just as surely as night follows day, we will reap the blessings that are promised to the faithful. Sometimes the way of fulfillment may not be apparent to us, but the actuality of it is assured. The Lord said, I, the Lord, am bound when ye do as I say, but when ye do not what I say, ye have no promise. How many of us on Judgment Day would like to be told that we had failed to do our part, that we had been unworthy servants of the Lord because our own lives had been such a poor example in keeping the commandments? In Matthew, the Lord gives us a very important message. 
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, to fail to keep the commandments of the Lord not only brings condemnation, but actually deprives us of many blessings here on this earth to say nothing of those eternal blessings for which we are all striving. In 1 Corinthians we read this statement, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Think of that great promise. And then finally the great promise given to all men. And if you keep my commandments and endure to the end, you shall have eternal life, which, is, which gift is the greatest gift of all the gifts of God. Now our late President Heber J. Grant told us how to endure to the end when he said this, Let us do the will of our Father in heaven today. We will then be prepared for the duties of tomorrow and for the eternities to come. Christ repeatedly emphasized the fact that the gospel is one of work and service. To gain blessings, we must be doers of the word and not hearers only. In St. Matthew we read this, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. This means if we are to gain salvation, exaltation, and eternal life, we must live in accordance with the principles of the gospel. We must love and forgive all men and keep the commandments of God. I leave my testimony with you today that I know the true gospel of Jesus Christ has been restored in this dispensation, that Joseph Smith was an instrument in the hands of the Lord in bringing this about. He was and is a prophet of God. I testify that we are led today by a prophet, President Harold B. Lee. May we all give him and his associates our love and support and pray continually that they may be blessed with health and strength and inspiration to carry their tremendous responsibilities. May we have courage and determination to keep the commandments and live in accordance with the principles of the gospel. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. After the Lord had created Adam, he made it crystal clear that he did not intend that Adam should go through life without a companion. When he said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make an helpmeet for him. So Eve was created and given to Adam to be his wife and companion. Many of you young people in the Church have reached an age where you are old enough to look, to look for a companion and mate. As you commence dating on a steady basis, you will enter a period known as courtship. This will be a thrilling and important time in your lives. President McKay referred to it in these words. Courtship is a wonderful period. It should be a sacred one. That is the time in which you choose your mate. Young men, your success in life depends upon that choice. 
Choose prayerfully the one who inspires you to your best. And always remember that no man injures the thing he loves. The seeds of a happy marriage are sown in youth. Happiness does not begin at the altar. It begins during the period of youth and courtship. Young people, choose prayerfully and carefully. Don't rush hastily into marriage. Determine that you have common goals and interests. Especially be certain that you possess the same religious convictions and beliefs. Wise man once counseled, Before marriage, keep thine eyes wide open. Then after marriage, keep them half closed. <laughs> marriage brings adjustments because each has his or her own personality. Reared in homes with varying backgrounds, marriage naturally require the making of adjustments. Marriage, my beloved young brothers and sisters, should not just be taken for granted. It must be worked at. But realize that you can have the kind of a marriage that you earnestly desire and for which you're willing to work. Marriage will require giving and taking. It will mean sharing, because life was meant to be shared. A happy and successful marriage means forgetting oneself and thinking of ways in which to make one's companion happy. It might be well each day for the husband to think, what can I do today to make Mary happy? And Mary should say to herself, what can I do today to make John happy? A happy home is where the wife is treated like a queen and the husband is treated like a king. And so it is not only marrying the right partner, it is being the right partner. A happy and successful marriage will be one that was built on the important principle of love. A love recognizing not only a fleeting physical attraction, but more importantly, a deeply spiritual love that will continue forever. At the dedication of the beautiful Oakland Temple, the Prophet of the Lord emphasized the fact that love is eternal in these words. One great purpose carried out by those who come into the temple is the sealing of man and wife in the sacred bonds of matrimony. That purpose is based upon the fact that man and woman truly love each other. That means that a couple coming to the altar should be sure that there is love in each heart. It would be a terrible thing to be bound for eternity to one whom you do not love, but it is a glorious thing to be sealed for time and eternity to one who you do love. President McKay then continued by saying, Let us ever remember that love is the divinest attribute of the human soul. Love must be fed. Love must be nourished. Love can be starved to death just as literally as the body can be starved without daily sustenance. If that love is fed daily and monthly and yearly throughout a lifetime, 
the husband's attention will not be drawn to somebody else. He then concluded with these words. If your spirit lives after death as it does, then that attribute of love will persist. Honeymoons should not end right after the marriage ceremony, but should never cease. President and Sister McKay set a wonderful example of the Church and of the world. On their 65th wedding anniversary, President McKay referred to their married life as 65 years of wedded courtship. There are many kinds of marriages, but Latter-day Saints should realize that there is only one place on earth where one can obtain a first-class marriage, and that is in the house of the Lord. And it is one of the purposes for which temples are built. What a worthwhile and splendid tradition it is for those who are married and sealed in the temple to return each year on or near their wedding anniversary and recall the promises they have made to each other and to the Lord. Of course, this will be in addition to the many other times that they will attend the temple. We are mindful that the Church has constantly stressed the importance of the home. Many valuable and worthwhile suggestions and programs have been introduced to point ways in which a happy home may be realized. I am convinced that a happy home is the result of a happy marriage. That is why it is so important to select a suitable companion and mate. In our world today, there is an apparent disregard for the marriage vows made, and we view with concern and alarm the noticeable increase in divorces throughout the land. This would indicate that homes are not happy, and as a result, marriages are failing. Too many men and women become discontented and develop a roving eye as their attention is attracted to someone else. Hence, too many divorces are a result of unfaithfulness on the part of the wife, the husband, or both. There would be fewer divorces if the counsel and guidance given by the Lord were followed. In a revelation of the prophet Joseph, he said, Thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart, and shall cleave unto her and none else. I am persuaded that too many divorces today could be avoided. They are not justifiable. President Stephen L. Richards, a former counselor in the First Presidency, once aptly remarked, In the case of marital disagreement, which may lead to separation, the proper remedy is not divorce, but repentance. Repentance usually on the part of both husband and wife. Repentance for both acts committed and harsh words which have made a hell instead of a heaven out of the home. In order for a married couple to make a heaven out of their home, they must realize that repentance, love, faithfulness, humility, and forgiveness are basic essentials in achieving this noble and lofty goal. A serene home must, always, or must also be a place 
where the Spirit of the Lord will dwell and abide. And the Spirit of the Lord will not dwell nor abide in a home where there is constant bickering, quarreling, arguing, discord, or disharmony. The Prophet Joseph had to learn many of these valuable lessons, as we likewise will have to do. David Whitmer, a close associate of the Prophet and one of the three witnesses for the Book of Mormon, related an enlightening experience which occurred while the Prophet was translating the gold plates. These are Brother Whitmer's words. He, Joseph, was a religious and straightforward man. He had to be, for he was illiterate and could do nothing himself. He had to trust in God. He could not translate unless he was humble and possessed the right feelings toward everyone. To illustrate so you can see, one morning when he was getting ready to continue the translation, something went wrong about the house, and he was put out about it. Something that Emma, his wife, had done. Oliver and I went upstairs, and Joseph came up soon after to continue the translation. But he could not do anything. He could not translate a single syllable. He went downstairs, out into the orchard, and made supplication to the Lord. Was gone for about an hour. Came back to the house and asked Emma's forgiveness. And then came upstairs where we were. And then the translation went on all right. He could do nothing save he was humble and faithful. It is my sincere and humble prayer that we may all live in such a way that we will have happy and serene homes where love abounds and the Spirit of the Lord is ever present. For which I pay and pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.